So I hope you're all adhering to good health habits when you're here in Las Vegas, right? Getting to bed at 8 o'clock, avoiding alcohol, right? <laughs> Aren't we? Yes? Who wants to lie with me? Come on, let's all lie together. <laughs> We're all doing that, right? How many people exercise this morning? Right? Let's all, come on, let's all lie together. We all exercise, right? What do our patients tell you? I follow everything you tell me, right? One of the most frustrating things in the, in the field of medicine is when you have something that might help someone and they don't follow through with it, right? We're going to talk about that. Uh, it's interesting because I think that I've run pain clinics for 30 years, although I started when I was eight years old. I was a prodigy, by the way. Um, and I think that's most of the frustrating thing. We had this very intensive interdisciplinary pain program where you had, you know, they don't exist anymore because no one pays for it, but PT, OT, psych services, nutrition, weight loss, et cetera. Patients would do really great in that kind of environment, and then six months later, you can see they just dropped off. Um, how many people are primary care clinicians, mostly? Pain? Okay, all right, great. So it is frustrating when we know that we have a molecule that might help someone and they don't take it. We have a, you know, an intervention that, 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 that might help someone. So we're going to go through a lot of things here today. And jump, jump in if you want. So I have no conflict of interest, which is why I drive an old Subaru. So if anyone has conflict of interest, please see me after the show because I have some opening on my slide. Uh, I don't have any off-label or investigational drugs, just about how to take drugs. So here's a learning objective. This is one to know the difference between adherence and compliance because we use them interchangeably. One's very pejorative, one's not. Uh, describe the three primary barriers to improving adherence in your practice and understand basic strategies to improve adherence in general. So this is a WHO uh, a document from 2003 where they really looked at the big issue of adherence in, in medicine in general. So they talked about diabetes, cancer. They excluded one condition, pain, which is really interesting. So that was a really interesting that, that, that sort of pain drops off the radar when we talk about big health care issues. And we know that chronic pain absorbs a lot of, of health care dollars, right, a lot of time. But two points that I want to make out is, one, increasing the effectiveness of adherence interventions may have a far greater impact on health care and, and populations than any improvement in specific medical treatments. Coming up with a brand new molecule that's going to help someone doesn't matter if nobody, A, pays for it and no one takes it. And second, patients need to be supported, not blamed. In our opioid phobia uh, madness nowadays, we blame patients and clinicians, right? You're all to blame for the opioid crisis or the patients are to blame for it. I wrote an article about that we need a top-down reformation. How about paying for things that are non-opiates? How many people get frustrated with that, right? So the CDC guidelines, which is half fantasy and half just good practice, you should never write an opiate. But if you do, they first have to do PT, OT, hot rock massage, acupuncture, CBT. Does any of your patients have access to that or the funds for it? So again, we need to not blame clinicians and, and blame patients. And if you're going to improve adherence, you need to be a collaborator with your patients, right? And last is healthcare pro professionals need to be trained in adherence. Anyone get any training in adherence during their training at all? How many people got training in pain in, pain in medical school, nursing school? Not much. Addiction? Not much. You all learned the Krebs cycle, which makes you a good gardener, but not a very good clinician. <laughs> right? <laughs> So Hippocrates, and not the bartender down the street, 
said that keep a, a watch also on the faults of patients, which often make them lie about taking of things prescribed. For through, th through not taking disagreeable drinks, purgative or other, they sometimes die. So when people don't follow our advice sometimes, they can have really bad outcomes. Now, interestingly, in modern times, again, one of the most frustrating things is not having patients follow what we do. I'll steal a, a line from, from Steve Pasek, who's a friend, is that I can't even finish this Z-Pack, so I'm not the one to blame. But surveys of healthcare providers say this is one of the most frustrating things to practice, that I know I'm skilled at this, I can help someone get better and improve their quality of life, I can't get them to follow through with it, particularly about physical activity, exercise. Uh, Hayes is a, is a kind of a, it's an older uh, uh, publication, but he, he's a big um, adherence person. He said, in an area where efficacious therapies exist or are being developed at a rapid rate, it is truly discouraging that one half of patients for whom appropriate therapy is prescribed fa fail to receive full benefit through, in benefit through inadequate adherence to treatment. Now, if we, what is the difference between compliance and adherence? because we use the words interchangeably, right? But they mean very different things. Compliance is a very pejorative thing. It refers to the extent that patients are obedient to our instructions, right? You show them all the degrees on the walls, because that really impresses them, by the way, um, and prescriptions of healthcare providers. So it's a very kind of dogmatic, you know, I'm your provider, you should follow through what I say. I went to, I went to Harvard, you should follow me, you know? You went to Yale or something, it's not as good, but I didn't go to either one. I went to Princeton, so, I, so, so again, it's this very, you're, you're not being compliant with me, you're a child, you know, and it's this mentality that our, our patients are children that need to be led. Does it, do you think that it really facilitates adherence at all? And see, see all this from the patient's perspective, right? Put yourself as a patient, and if someone was doing this, you know, you should lose weight, you should stop smoking, I call it don't shoot on yourself, you know? Patients look at you like, what? You know smoking is bad for you? And you go, wow, really, doctor? You must think I'm really stupid. I know it's bad for me, but how do I change that behavior? Now, it, adherence implies a more active, voluntary, collaborative involvement of the patient in a mutually acceptable course of behavior. It's setting goals that both of you agree on. Your goal is for them to lose weight, exercise every day, don't smoke, take their medications as prescribed. What do you think their goals are? I want to be more functional. I want to be more involved in my family. Um, I don't know what these other issues are. And how can I connect the dots? The World Health Organization defines adherence as the extent to which a person's behavior, taking medication, following a diet, and or executing lifestyle changes corresponds with agreed recommendations from a healthcare provider, a collaboration. I was talking to a retired internist, and he said, you know, when I trained in medical school, the, the, the physician was the pilot and the patient was the passenger. The new model is that the patient is your co-pilot. And the more collaboration you have, the more, you know, the patient trusts you, doesn't think that you're, thinks that you have their back, they're going to start adhering more. And we'll talk about some of the problems. Now, interestingly, this is Chapin in 1915. I love this quote. It said that we might not be surprised that people do not believe all we say and often fail to take us seriously. If their memories were better, they would trust us even less, right? So interestingly, patients survived 
by not following the advice of their health care providers. I have the bloodletting here, so I'm, I live in Philadelphia. So in the times of when Adams, uh, John Adams and Abigail Adams lived in Philadelphia during the Con Continental Con Congress, that Benjamin uh, Rush, who's the father of psychiatry, was their family physician. And every August, everyone got sick in Philadelphia. And they thought was that there was a lunar event and that people had too much blood. So he would bloodlet every day and almost killed Abigail Adams every day. So Philadelphia back in the 1700s was surrounded by swamps. So what do you think happened in August? Mosquitoes, right? It wasn't a lunar event. So sometimes patients survive by not following what the healthcare provider uh, offered. Uh, so the, in, the incidence of iatrogenic effects and the frequency of adverse drug effects are of considerable magnitude. There is increasing awareness from healthcare providers that sometimes they're wrong and their instructions are best ignored. Right? Adherence must be balanced with the patient's objectives of quality of life adjustment and the patient's own efforts to cope with the illness. We have to take this all into consideration. Now I'm going to tell you the perfect way to improve adherence and then I'm going to tell you at the end you can't do it. But I have some solutions. Because how many, time, how many minutes do you have with your patient? How many people spend 10 minutes or less with a patient? Right? 15 minutes, 20, 30, more than 30. Wow, I'm going to come to you for care. <laughs> the average amount of time a primary care doc spends with them, or clinician, seven minutes, right? So again, we have to get through all our checklists. How many people are on EMR? You know, EPIC, which is a four-letter word, by the way. <laughs> and, and the EPIC makes you do all these checklists. You can't even t spend the time with the patient. You've got to check that you did this, check that you did this, check that you did that. So again, there's some real barriers in doing that. But when you have the advantage of seeing patients over time, even if it's seven minutes here and seven minutes here, if you build the trust, if you build the collaboration, they will follow and their adherence will improve. So consideration of adherence must be aligned and tied to the patient's treatment goals and objectives. And I'm going to say that over and over and over again. Their self-view, their perceptions of quality of life, what you think is an improvement in quality of life may not be, match up with them. And oftentimes, we're here and the patient's here. And until we get those goals matched and understand their perception of health, how they deal with, it, with the condition, their ability to deal with the illness, then we're never going to improve adherence. And it depends, again, on the strong clinician-patient therapeutic alliance. So Dr. Perry Fine and I just published a book called Facilitating Treatment Adherence in Pain Medicine. Please buy one because then maybe three people have bought it. You know, if my mother was alive, she would have bought one, but anyway. But every, every chapter had the same theme. So we talked about exercise. We talked about nutrition. We talked about taking medications. We talked about d dealing with depression. Every single trap chapter from different authors said the same thing. It depends on the relationship you have with the patient. So Dr. Sir William Osler said, the desire to take medicine is perhaps the greatest feature that distinguishes man from animals, right? Your dog doesn't go you know, wanting early drug refills, right? And it's in, in direct contradiction to the incidence of non-adherence to medical prescriptive advice. So again, we don't often have problems with people taking opiates or benzos, do we? Right? Maybe following through. I've always wondered if you did a urine drug test on someone you have on gabapentin or SNRI that it didn't show up. I would just be interested every once in a while because it's all the same thing. So a patient comes in, I, tell, I was just giving this lecture like this to my fellows, and I said a patient comes in and they have neuropathically derived pain and you put them on an anti-epileptic drug so they should have some improvement and they have no improvement. And forget, and forget opiates. Haven't you ever wondered why they don't have improvement? You know, is it maybe they're not taking the medication? 
you know, and until you have that conversation with the patient, it's not going to change the dynamics. So look at the incidence of non-adherence. It kind of varies, but up to 60% of patients fail to keep appointments for preventative programs. Up to 40% fail to keep appointments for curative regimens. These are high, high, high statistics. Only 7% of diabetics adhere to all steps considered necessary for good control. 7%. Um, up to 60% of patients will discontinue prescription medications prior to being instructed to do so. Up to 70% will not follow medication instructions. Over 50% of patients with chronic non-cancer pain are non-adherents to prescribed exercise programs. Up to 62% with chronic pain are non-adherent to psychopharmacologic treatment. So taking the antidepressants, taking the sleeping medication, et cetera, which you know will improve their pain and quality of life, right? If you get the right combination for the right patient. So the general rule of thumb, and this is very discouraging, is that one-third of your patients always seem to take your advice. One-third sometimes do, and the other ones don't. So two-thirds of the patients you're seeing are not following your instructions. Does that surprise anybody at all? It's interesting. We'll talk about communications. They did a survey, and they surveyed patients the minute they walked out of the exam room, and 70% couldn't remember what the, what the clinician said to them, right? It's scary. And some of these medications and molecules are dangerous, you know, or patients are forget that they're on a benzo and they're on an opioid and they have this drug-drug interactions. So the level of treatment uh, non-adherence obviously increases if it's supervised. For example, 92% of adherence rate for chemotherapy because you're hooking them up and they have to come there. But otherwise, it's very, very low across all disciplines, all medical conditions. So what are adherence behaviors? What do we want patients to do? To enter and continue a treatment program. You've sent them to physical therapy. You'd like them to show up and actually follow through. Keeping referral and follow-up appointments. Correct consumption of prescription medication. Following, which is the hardest one, is appropriate lifestyle changes. So people who have musculoskeletal pain, particularly low back pain, how many people would benefit from weight loss and exercise? 99% of them, right? Uh, correct performance of home-based therapeutic regimens and avoidance of health risk behaviors. This is what we want for our patients, right? Follow my advice, follow good, good care, take care of yourself, engage in healthy behavior. So a little data on adherence to weight loss and physical activity. Adults who maintain a healthy weight and remain active are far less likely to develop chronic pain, which makes sense. Patients with chronic pain who manage their weight and man maintain daily body activities and regular exercises are more likely to have a positive response to therapy, a reduction in pain, improvement in function, improvement in mood, and improvement in quality of life. Chronic pain and obesity are increasingly recognized. The number one killer in this country is not smoking, it's obesity, right? And I think about, we're almost on the range where I think in another two or three years it's projected that 50% of children will be high BMI, right? Individuals with persistent pain and are overweight are likely to experience increased disability, poor psychosocial function, reduced quality of life, they don't respond to treatment as well, and cost the system a lot of money. And it's a risk factor for poor pain outcomes and several pain-related conditions. This is an interesting one. In one community-based study, they compared normal weight twins and those with a BMI greater than 25, and the ones with greater than 25 reported uh, physician-diagnosed low back pain, tension-type headaches, and uh, fibromyalgia, Hello, back there. All right, don't worry, I can dance. You don't want to hear me sing. 
I can do some understanding actually. But they, they reported this increase in BMI, 25 or high. I, did, I had a, a medical student, we have a big pain clinic at Penn. I had him go through and calculate what our average BMI in our clinic is. What do you think it was? Greater than 32. Wow. All right? And it's not uncommon. So this is real data. This is twin data. So when you start thinking of 25, they're not going to have the same response. Rates of obesity and fibromyalgia have been shown to be high, ranging from 47 to 73%. And overweight individuals may be 60% to 80% greater risk of developing fibromyalgia. So now we're talking about prevention, not even treating the chronic pain. So there are really two forms of, of non-adherence. One is drug errors and behavioral. Make sure I stay on time. Um, so what are drug errors? They don't fill the prescription. Now, we have prescription drug monitoring plans in all states except Missouri. It's one of the M states. I think Missouri doesn't have it. But we don't look at things that like gabapentin, antidepressants, you know, non-benzos, sleeping medications. A lot of patients just don't fill the prescriptions. Why do they think they do that? Because they want to please you. They want to be a good patient. So you give them something and you're excited about trying deloxetine or something and they want to please you. So they go like this and they take the prescription and never fill it. Filling the prescription but failing to take the medication or taking only a part of it. Uh, a colleague of mine, uh, Dennis Turk out at the University of Washington did a survey of about I don't know, several hundred pain patients on opiates and they only 10% took the opiates as prescribed, right? So if you gave them like Percadoodles one TID, they would do one on one day, three on one day, four on one day, four, three on, and which actually makes sense to me. I mean, I tell patients you want to average three a day because there's days pain fluctuates. So maybe you do take one today and you take four tomorrow. Do you think a patient's ever going to tell you that? Absolutely not, especially not in this environment. So again, you have to think that people are just not following it. And they're not following the frequency or dose recommendations, and they're taking medication not prescribed because they're self-directing. Why do patients self-direct? Because they don't trust us. They don't think that they're getting the full benefit. I'm a real downer today, aren't I? Wow. Um, so the, uh, the behavioral ones, go back, are not taking recommended preventative measures. And again, we don't put a lot of money into preventative medicine, we all know that. Other countries are far ahead of us in terms of prevention. Uh, incomplete implementation of instructions. Sabotaging the treatment, and we'll talk about why they do that. Creating one's own treatment regimen to fill gaps that they perceive that you are not filling for them. And substituting one's own program for recommended treatment regimens. I might tell you how many patients I see who I say, so you have this kind of subacute low back pain uh, have you seen a physical therapy? Uh, yeah, I got to do my own program. You know, I do stretches. I have a ball. You know, and they kind of put their own program together, and they just go the chronification of pain. They go from acute to, to chronic pain because of this. So, how do we assess adherence? Because I think it's really hard, and and I'm really serious. I think that every once in a while, if you see a patient who's on like a, again gabapentin for neuropathic pain, and they are not changing, and they should be changed. There should be some change in their pain. Why not just check with the pharmacy and see if they got the even filled? Because again, I think that's important data. And it's not important to try to you know, kind of give them the shake the finger at them. It's about let's sit down and talk about why you're not taking this medication. Because I'm telling you 90% of the time they're not going to volunteer that information. And I want to know why the patient isn't taking something that might help them. 
and it may be something that a cousin took it and uh, took it and become you know, became, started to hallucinate or something else. You know, I had a patient the other day. I said, "Do you take that?" They go, "No." And I said, "Well, why do you take it? Why, you know, why don't you take it?" They said, "Well, I had a cousin who had a bad reaction." That's interesting. You're not your cousin. You know, we're all different spins of the DNA. But it's important to really see: Are they adhering to things? Because when someone should be improving and they're not, what, what's the first thing you think? What's that? They're drug seeking, right? They want the opiates, the devil's dandruff. You know, they, you know, they're drug seeking or they're, they're psychiatric conditions. Again, very vilifying to patients. And most of the time, it's not that. Most of the time is they don't understand the directions, they have their own view of it, and, and, and until you extract that and understand their perception, you're not going to see a change in their behavior. So things that have been doing is interviewing the patient. Again, self-report measures, self-monitoring, pill counts of unused tablets. Now, who here has actually called a patient and said, I want you to bring your medicines in for a pill count, sort of unscheduled? So I'm going to tell you something. I love America, so we're such inventive people. So there are actually drug dealers that rent medications out. So if, no, they are, they are. They rent them out. And so you think the patient's doing just super, you know? So if, they, if they're supposed to have 30 Percocets, they, can, they have drug dealers that will rent out 30 Percocets for a fee. Then you bring them back to them, and, and they do well. So there's always, this, again, it's very inventive. Uh, tallies of refill of medications and some behavioral measures. And again, it's the clinical rating. Mark sign techniques, they, they've always suggested this. I like hypothetical things that you'll never do in practice, by the way. I think these people who actually write some of these things have never seen a patient in 20 years because you know that there's not going to be a false marker embedded in these, in these medications. But biomedical, bio, uh, biochemical indicators like urine drug testing, that is something that, that is useful. You know, is the opiate there? Is the benzo there? Are there other medications that shouldn't be there? Those are measures of adherence. Again, I also think that every once in a while you should do a urine drug test and look at other non-opioid Schedule II drugs just to see if they're taking the medication. And again, it gives you an opportunity to sit down. Just like when someone misuses opiates, what do we do? We sit down, try not to be judgmental, and we sit down and say, let's talk about this. We need to do the same thing for non-opioid therapies. Record of broken appointments. The nice thing if you're in a system and the nice thing of EPIC, you can see if they actually follow through with things. You send them to behavioral health, they never made the appointment. You send them to physical therapy, they never went. You know, that's kind of a black and white marker. Of, are they adhering to these behavioral things? And again, clinical outcome. You're all seasoned you know, clinicians. You know that if you're giving them this molecule or this intervention, there should be a change in their pain. And if there's not, you have to think of non-adherence and you have to think about why are they non-adhering when I'm really in good faith trying to help them. So we all know, hopefully know, the, the Prochaski's motivation or readiness for changes, right? And again, this is another part that is just the finesse of adherence treatment. So we know that patients are, start with pre-contemplative, which means they, they aren't even thinking about it. Contemplative, I thought about not smoking, but I haven't done anything. Determination to actually make those steps to stop smoking. Action, finding the tools to stop smoking. And then maintenance, maintaining that new behavior. Where are most healthcare providers at? Action, right? 
I, I see the patient every three months. We've had this discussion about, about stopping smoking. So I'm going to prescribe you a Nicoderm patch, which are really hard to keep lit, by the way. And, or I'm going to give you the Zyban, or I'm going to give you this. Where are most of your patients? Pre-contemplative, right? They're pre-contemplative. They're going, I came here for my hypertension check. Why, why are you nagging me about smoking, right? But we check it off in Epic, and we're a great condition, right? You have to see where are they at. Are they really even thought about changing their behavior? They're overweight. Is it contributing to their back pain? And you give them this beautiful lecture about obesity and waiting on the axial spine and blah, blah, blah. Even show them a pretty picture. But if they're at the pre-contemplative or contemplative, you're not going to be moving the needle anyway. So you have to assess that. And where, how serious are you about thinking about this? And I want you to be honest with me. And then how do we move them from pre-contemplative to contemplative? Is education and nudging. You nudge a little bit. Every, t every time you have a chance, you give them a little bit. Have you ever talked to a patient and told them all the bad things that happen if they smoke, how you're going to die an ugly death? Have they ever stopped smoking at all? And I do this kind of crazy thing. I don't know if it's that crazy, but it could be. I tell patients, I have this little thing I have them fill out. On the one side, it says, me now, and the other side is, me as I want to be. And the middle is behaviors. So I say, describe yourself right now. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm out of shape, uh, you know, I'm not productive, I'm a good spouse, I try to be a good parent, you know, I, I, I'm depressed. Well, me is you know, I want to be. Well, I want to be more energetic. I want to be more productive. I want to be a better spouse, a better parent. Okay, what behaviors are you going to engage in to go from here to here? Because it's what you want. It's your vision for you, not what my want. What are those things? Exercise, weight loss, relaxation therapy, smoking cessation. And patients get it because it's anchored to their beliefs, not yours. I do a lot of work with pain and patients who have substance use disorders, and the patient will say, my goal is to be sober. And I said, no, your goal is to not be an ass. <laughs> Being sober is how you get to not be an ass and be a better person and contribute. Patients get the anchors because it's their goals, not yours. Where do you want to be? Because most patients don't want to be inactive and not productive and feel like a burden on life. You, do you believe that? I don't think they do. But they don't see how they can get anywhere else. Visualize where you want to be. I had a patient, a wonderful patient, beautiful, smart, you know, really bright lady, a great man, and she loved smoking. She loved it. And she knew that she wasn't stupid. She knew it was bad for herself. She got pregnant, stopped smoking for nine months, right? So, so physically, she wasn't dependent. As soon as she dropped her daughter, she bought a pack of cigarettes, right? She was sitting one day outside, because she never smoked in the house, on a rainy, cold day smoking, and she looked through the window and saw her husband with the baby and said, what is my vision of what I want to be as a mother? You know, do I want to be out here smoking and not in involved in it? And how is my health going to affect my ability to be my, the mom I want? She took a long drag on the cigarette, flipped it, and never smoked again. There was nothing magical. She found her way of what she wanted to be, and we have to find patients that anchor. What do you, where do you want to be? Because they're seeing you because they're not happy with their life, right? They want to be somewhere else. But we have this preconceived of what that means. You need to drop your BMI. You need to stop smoking. You need to exercise on a regular basis. You need to take your med This is our vision. They don't have that same vision. So I link, again, the behaviors to what they want, you know, and it's really, really, people really have this, wow, I didn't realize that that's the connection for me. Does that kind of make sense to people? And it's a simple little exercise. 
So what are the factors that affect ad adherence? It's the patient characteristics, the treatment regimen characteristics, the features of the disease, the relationship you have, and the clinical setting. So here are the patient variables that really affect adherence. And this is uncertainty about the efficacy of the, of the treatment. All of us who do chronic pain management, how many physicians, clinicians, therapists have they seen before they've seen you? 30, right? So they have this view of what's going to help them and what's not going to help them. I use gabapentin a lot. I had a patient who had really bad CRPS, and, and gabapentin's not for me. Well, it turns out she was on 100 milligrams three times a day, totally subtherapeutic, right? But her view was that's not a medication that's going to help me. Prior experience with the illness, expectations about the symptoms, past experience with the healthcare providers, because most of our patients have been kind of treated not very well. You know, if you, have the F, if you have the F word fibromyalgia, right, people are treated like garbage, like they're psychiatric. And then they come into you and they say, what, what do they think, how do they think they're going to be treated? They're going to think they're going to be treated poorly. Remember the old concepts of transfers, counter-transference? Well, it hurts my head when I say that. But, you know, the patient is thinking this is going to be a clinician who's going to not trust me and treat me like I'm psychiatric and like I'm drug-seeking. What's the physician thinking? Oh my God, why does God hate me? <laughs> you know, this patient's overweight, they don't exercise, they've been non compliant, you know, et cetera. I, I, was, I was giving a lecture to some OBGYN residents, and I said, okay, visualize this. You're a resident just been handed this new case, you're taking it over. The patient has nondescript, horrible pelvic pain, is on high doses of opiates, is high BMW, BMI. What are you thinking? Oh my God. And you bring that into the room with you. The patient on the other side is, here's another doctor that's going to tell me that I'm fat and I need to lose weight and that's all my problems or that I'm crazy and need to be on Zoloft. So those things, that see expectations. And you need to get a pulse on your patient about what they're expect. And ask simple questions like, so you've seen a lot of practitioners before. How did that go? You know, and they'll tell you very honestly because it helps you kind of set the right stage. It's embarrassment about being in treatment. So someone has really significant depression, they're very embarrassed to go to mental health. So they'll say yes, 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 but they don't go. You have to kind of, sort of figure out why that is. Pessimism. I've had this for 15, 20 years. Nothing has helped me, right? Fatalism and competing environmental demands that seem more salient and the role of the patient's belief. So I had a woman who was sent to me when I ran a behavioral medicine clinic a thousand years ago who was non-adherent to her diabetic regimen. So she came and said, you do behavioral stuff. Make her, make her follow this. So I sat down with her, and I, my first question is, why don't you do it? She goes, huh, no one's ever asked me. Honestly, no one had ever asked her why she doesn't follow the home diet. She goes, I'm a single mom with three children. I can't afford it. It wasn't that she was going, I'm not going to do it. She said, no one ever asked me why I can't do it. So I either feed my kids or I follow the diet. I choose to feed my kids. You know, so it became more of a social issue, not an inherent issue, but actually drilling down to this and thinking about this perspective, asking these patients questions. Treatment variables, how complex is the treatment? When someone's taking a polypharmacy, you know their adherence is going to go down. How intrusive is the treatment? Um, the duration of the treatment, the longer the treatment, the less adherence. And the knowledge of the illness has nothing to do with adherence. The more you give them educations and handouts and downloading things has no change on adherence. Patients oftentimes don't have the resources to follow what you're asking. I want you to go to physical therapy three times a week. Copay is $40 each visit, $120. Um, I'm going to take time off of work. 
we need to ask patients. I, you know, I started, even when I, I teach about adherence, I go like, do I really ask patients, can you do this? Do you have transportation? You know, do you have someone supporting you this? So sometimes we give, you know, we prescribe things the patient can't afford, if they have other demands in their life, and you need to ask these questions. You know, can, is this something you're afford? You're working two jobs. Can you really get, take time off to go to physical therapy? Because in, in that seven minutes, they're going to say, yeah, 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 and they'll take the prescription. They'll come back. They haven't gone to physical therapy, and we start this whole drama over and over again. Illness and symptom variables. Again, if it's, if, it's a, if it's non-symptomatic to the patient, they're not going to be very adherent. If you have hypertension and you're not, getting blood, you're not having headaches, they are going to be less adherent. You would think with chronic pain, they would be more adherent. In, in our book we wrote, it's like, why wouldn't people follow things because they have this really symptomatic disease? But clearly, if someone isn't, that does not experience the symptoms, they're going to be less adherent. Relationship variables. Again, if you're perceived as unapproachable, unfriendly, you're not going to have a good outcome in terms of adherence. How much the patient participates and understands the treatment program? How much supervision? And the one is the degree of the, H, the healthcare provider establishes trust. When I see a, a new physician, and it's, we all do this, I'm sitting here and they're doing this. I'll, I'll tell you a sad story. I went to see a urologist for something minor. The nurse practitioner asked me two questions. He walked in and said, hi, I'm Dr. So-and-so. Why don't you drop your pants? And I said, because I'm a smart aleck, I said, what, no dinner first? And he, just, <laughs> and he stared at me, and I went, please tell me that, you, that your hands are warm at least. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but, but if that was an ongoing, I'm not going to, this is a one-and-done urologic thing. If I, but that was an ongoing relationship, and that was my first encounter, I would go like, whoa, <laughs> you know, we haven't even established anything. Um, so anyway, yeah. Organizational. These are things you can change. The nature of the referral process, continuity of care, personalized care, scheduling of appointments, length time, less than one week enhances adherence. So you say, I need you to go see Cheadle, but I have a three-month waiting list. What am I going to think about that you is referring me there? Like, you're not that invested. <laughs> Because why am I waiting three months for this? In our clinic, they say, we're going to try this new medications, and I want to see you in a month. They go out to get a schedule. Oh, they, they don't have an opening until for four months. What, what taste does that leave in the patient's mouth? You're not that serious about it. You said you want to see me in a month to see if this medication works, but I can't get in for four months. Um, length of waiting time, you know, is really important. If, if you're, and perceive it from your patient's perspective. If you're in the waiting room and you're waiting an hour and a half past your scheduled time, what, how valuable do you think that you feel from the physician? I had an ophthalmologist I had to see every once in a while, and I remember this, that he was always late, and you sit there for hours. So I got the very first appointment, 8 o'clock. They, they dilated my eyes, and the assistant said, it's funny how they have you come in at 8, because he doesn't even get in until 9. Oh, interesting. He walks in the, in the, in the room at 9.50. So I said, did you have an emergency? I said, no. I said, can I ask you a personal question? He goes, what? I said, do you have, like, narcolepsy? <laughs> he goes, why would you say that? I said, well, you must fall asleep somewhere. <laughs> like, well, what is this? But as, you know, I'm pretty easygoing, but if that, was, if that was a patient, how valuable am I? How valuable is my time? And you're setting the stage from the moment they come in. How, if your staff is, is unapproachable and rushed and, and very short with the patient, it sets the stage for adherence or non-adherence. 
increased patient supervision, good links between inpatient outpatient services, and again, that staff positive thing. So if you can reduce that wait time, if you can say, I'm going to organize myself so nobody waits more than a few minutes unless it's an emergency. And in my clinic, I get overloaded because I'm only there one day a week at this one clinic. But if I'm behind, I physically go out to the patient and say, I'm really, really sorry, but they really added some patients in, and I'll reschedule you. You know how that changes, the, the relationship when they come back and see me? You know, and if they wait, they come back and they're not angry, they're not upset because you came out personally and said, I'm sorry. There's nothing wrong with that. Most important variables leading to non-adherence, patient does not know what to do. Again, 70% don't even remember what you said to them. Does not have the skills or resources. We talked about finances, transportation, support at home. Does not believe that it's gonna, they're going to be able to carry it out. Does not believe carrying out is going to make a, a darn difference in their outcome. And their treatment regimen is too demanding, and the patient does not believe that the benefit outweighs the, the hassle of doing it. So you have to think of all these factors. So what are the most important variables leading to non-adherence? Again, associated with adverse or adversive or non-reinforcing events. The poor quality of your relationship. No continuity of care. The clinic is not mobilized for facilitating. I hope you walk away with this two things. If I improve my relationship with my patient, even if it's seven minutes, and I mobilize my staff and clinic to address some of these short calls, I'm going to improve adherence right off the bat. Back to Hippocrates again, the importance of communication. The patient, though conscious that his condition is perilous, may recover his health simply through his contentment with the goodness of the physician. People get better. People follow your advice if they think you give a damn. Bottom line. So enhancing the relationship is important. The patient and physicians are critical to facilitate this. Few medical schools teach this. Physicians, how they relate to the patient is critical. I'll say that over and over again. There are two types of relationships that you have with the patient. One is the active physician, um, clinician, and the passive patient. The other one is a collaborative relationship with the patient. What do you want out of this treatment? And let me tell you, that's realistic and that's not realistic. I always say to all our fellows, the first thing you ask the patient, new patient, what do you expect of, of coming here? Well, I want to go back in heavy construction, and I want, well, that's not going to happen. Now, that may seem pretty abrupt, but patients actually respect you when you, when you say, this is not realistic, right? A number of studies have demonstrated that when patients feel that they are actively involved in decision-making around their care, their adherence dramatically improves. If they feel that they're part of the team and not someone who's just being pointed at. Treatment contracts, do you think they work? Nope. Nope. I think treatment contracts are important in establishing goals and the do's and don'ts of what you're going to do with your practice. How many people use, like, the opioid agreements, right? How many people go back six months and reevaluate the agreement? You don't need this lecture. But a lot of people don't. They sign it. It's one and done. And what's not in these agreements are, I'm starting you on this molecule. Here's the goals we are, we've established together, that you're going to go volunteer work, that you're going to do this, you're going to do that. Six months from now, we haven't hit any of these goals. So this is obviously the wrong treatment for you. If you're treating hypertension and you put me on a beta blocker and get me at a therapeutic level and my blood pressure doesn't change, are you going to continue on that drug? You're going to sit down with me and say, this isn't helping you, Marty. We've got to do something different. There's no difference with opiates or anything else we do, or antidepressants, whatever it may be. 
So again, it's being able to, to use the treatment agreements as a way to communicate with the patient, set goals, revisit the goals, and then, it's, and then wonder why they're not achieving it, because of adherence, because it's the wrong treatment, whatever. Peer-delivered interventions are really, really helpful. You know, why does Weight Watchers work? There's no magic in Weight Watchers. It's that you come in every week, you're supervised, and you have this peer support around you. Um, some, it's been really interesting in finding people in the hospital who are identified as having a substance use disorder. They have peers that are ex-addicts that come in and talk to them, and it has dramatically improved the follow-through with getting treatment because of this peer-peer inter intervention. So maybe getting some, some former patients, some peers that can be part of the whole process of treatment can really Im improve adherence. What about, so we're going to sit and look at, at, at adherence to pharmacotherapy. So again, we all know the kind of rules, that we want assessment through history, prescription drug monitoring plan, urine drug testing, mandatory opioid agreement with goals established and revisited, and then regular monitoring, monitoring with these things. So there's behavioral and psychological interventions and electronic monitoring, so that's really important. This is a study by Bob Jamison up in, up in Harvard, and what they did was a randomized controlled trial looking at the benefits of close monitoring and CBT interventions in high-risk patients. And what they found was it was monthly urine screens, as use of opioid checklists. The CBT interventions were designed to educate the patients on opioid misuse and abuse to enhance their coping skills around pain, around sub about medication use. And what they found was that compliance, they called compliance, I call adherence, training compared with monitoring of high-risk patients dramatically improved their outcome. They had far less aberrant behaviors as compared to patients who did not receive it. This is another study by Garfeld looking at mindfulness-oriented recovery enhancement. I love those names. RCT looking at effectiveness of mindfulness-based interventions for improving adherence with patients prescribed long-term opiates. So this intervention was called MORE. It's a novel multimodal intervention that integrated mindfulness training, cognitive repraisal, and emotional regulation training. They were randomly assigned it to that or a support group, and again, they found that patients that received this MORE treatment reported significantly less opioid craving, significantly less opioid misuse at the end of treatment than ones that didn't. So again, it's that burden of delivering it. Electronic monitoring is coming on really, very, 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 very important. That the internet and mobile technologies, every patient you have, 80% of people that are in the lowest socioeconomic have a smartphone, probably better than me. There's a rapid growth of e-health, you know, this electronic monitoring. And what we found is that you can do chronic pain assessment, smartphone tracking, medical management, psychological approaches, and lots of things of delivering CBT through uh, uh, Frank Keefe at Duke has this thing called Pain Coach. It's all CBT delivered. Uh, there's ones on smartphones. Rehab, looking at activity monitoring. How many people have a Fitbit? Right? You kind of, it's kind of fun when you hit the 10,000 and it buzzes, although I th always think I'm having a stroke. Um, sleep <laughs> and exercise monitoring. So we actually have some data, but you're giving the patient corrective feedback, which is a way of improving adherence. So this is, a, this is a, and these are slides where I borrowed from uh, Bob Jamison at Harvard. This, they came up with this pain assessment interview network at Harvard and clinical advisory. So I just want to give you an idea of what they've been using. So it's feedback to providers. It's feedback to patients. It's minimal patient clinician time, and it automatically creates patient records. So this is kind of what it looks like. It's all tabs, and they can do it at home. It's all web-based. So this is the kind of snapshots you get as a clinician. So you're looking at opioid risk assessment with the uh, current opioid uh, misuse measure or the SOAP. Um, you look at, at what their pain rating is, what their location is. 
you get data on their sleep, energy, mood, physical, and the patient has the same information. So you're getting, you're getting information, they're getting feedback, and you see it nicely kind of you know, graph. So if you see you did an intervention, your pain actually went down, your function improved, so you get this kind of corrective feedback. And what we know, studies show that when you have systematic feedback, it increases adherence. We utilize e email, smartphone, direct counseling. This is a snapshot of what we do at Penn, where I think most places have it. My Penn Medicine is a patient. You log into it, and you can get all these messages. You can get all this feedback about their blood work, what they've been doing well, that they've lost weight. So you can kind of build this in as kind of this reinforcement of positive uh, feedback to the patient, which does encourage the patient to follow through. The other thing is cognitive behavioral therapy and acceptance commitment therapy and adherence. So there's a robust literature that patients with chronic pain suffer from major depression, right? It's about 50 to 60% have diagnosable depression, probably 80% have anxiety. And what we have is a cycle of pain, depression, non-adherence, which means their pain gets worse, they get more depressed, non-adherence. And you see this with our patients. It's not that they don't want to follow your advice, but I, I think depression is the great demotivator. I call it the whatever syndrome. You want to go do this? Whatever. Whatever. You know? And we've all seen our patients. That, and, you know, and you know your patient, you say, I know they want to get better. But something, they just don't have that motivation. It's one of the, one of the vegetative signs of depression is low motivation. So, so treating the depression is going to help improve the adherence to it. And, you know, CBT's been around for a long time. You know, what do patients do with pain? Catastrophize. Oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, the pain's going to kill me. And kinesiophobia, fear of movement, which leads to weight gain, deconditioning. And all CBT is is reconceptualizing the patient's role to be proactive, not reactive, to give them skills like mindfulness-based meditation, cognitive restructuring, assertiveness technique, and then reinforcing it, rehearsal and relapse prevention. And we know the literature is pretty robust in looking at function and mood. By the way, our outcomes in pain management are function and mood, not pain, right? So put someone goes from an 8 to a 5 and they're still sitting on the couch, it's a bad outcome. But it's been effective in improving function and mood in arthritis, sickle cell, chronic low back pain, TMJ, lupus, pain in breast cancer patients. So it is effective. Acceptance commitment therapy, is everyone kind of familiar with what that is? It's kind of a variation of it. It's based on mindfulness. It's a, a very experiential. has to be self as content, diffusion. Acceptance is the goal. If I accept I have chronic pain, there's not going to be a, a cure, then I'm going to make modifications in my life so that I can achieve my goals. It's the patient who doesn't accept it and, and, re, and really subjects themselves to iatrogenic conditions, that fifth back surgery. Right, that, that, that 18th epidural. So they expose themselves to all this potential harm because they don't accept it. And what they found is this is one study from Lance McCracken and group. 171 patients with musculoskeletal pain completed a course of ACT. At a three-year follow-up, 68% maintained their improvement, which was anxiety, physical and psychosocial disability and depression all improved. And this was like with an eight-week program. So pretty effective. So when you're breaking the depression, pain kind of cycle, you're improving adherence, and you need to be aware of it. Goal setting is important, and I've sort of talked about this, but realistic goals that are achievable. My physical therapist is awesome. She sets the bar so low that the patient will meet the goal. So she does this six-minute walk test, and if they could do 10 minutes, she goes, let's do eight. The patient comes back and says, I did 15. 
you know? So you set the goals, make them realistic, achievable, reinforce. It's all about reinforcement, and it should be dynamic over time. She is so successful in getting people who have really fear of movement moving again. Behavioral contracting, again, is a little bit different than treatment contracting. It's really developing a process to sort of self-define behaviors that the patient can engage in that will enhance behavior, and you contract it and lay it out. Between now and next month, let's try to hit these goals, you know, which is a little bit different. And what's the ethical considerations? These are the pillars of medical ethics, autonomy, benefits, non-malfeasance, and justice. We have to see patients as having autonomy. They have the autonomy to make decisions for themselves. When we don't put, see them as an autonomous person, then we are really violating ethics. And the other thing is, is that clinicians should also be adherent to following good medical and clinical guidelines. I'm not talking about the CDC guidelines, right? We should view evidence-based medicine. How much is evidence-based in medicine? Someone said there's like five things that are really evidence-based, the rest is not, like aspirin, you know, antibiotics, I forget the other three were. But we have to follow, we have to adhere to following what's evidence-based, because a lot of things we do aren't evidence-based. And we have to see the patient again as an autonomous person who has a right to make their own decisions. So here's the Ten Commandments of Adherence. I think I'm almost on time. Anticipated non-adherence. Expect that two-thirds or more are not going to follow a darn thing you say. Consider a prescribed self-regimen from the patient's perspective. Put yourself in their shoes. Would I follow this recommendation? Would I take these 17 pills during the day? Would I really follow that? Foster a collaborative relationship based on negotiation. It's not your way or the highway. It's what we're going to agree with, and we're going to sort of edge that over time. Be patient-centered. Customize the treatment. Not, in our clinic, I always joke that everyone gets the same thing. Deloxetine, gabapentin, aquatic therapy. I tell the fellows, just don't even see them, just slip it under the door. <laughs> Enlist family support. Get the family involved. I'll bring family members in and say, look, we're having a problem here. How can we kind of work together on this? Provide a system of continuity. Utilize other healthcare providers. It doesn't have to be you. It could be your office staff, your medical assistants. Lots of people could be part of this process. Repeat everything, repeat everything, repeat everything, and don't give up. Now, I'm going to tell you why you won't follow anything I just said. <laughs> While you're not adherent, the patient should take my advice, right? Well, an interesting thing about, uh, we were talking, we did, this, there was a survey done about why people don't use urine drug monitoring when they have people on opiates. Do you know one of the number one reasons was? I know my patients, right? Not true. I try it in the past and it doesn't work with my population. They're so refractory and so complex, none of these things are going to work. Who has the time to do this? You don't get reimbursed for education, right? I don't get reimbursed for sitting there for 30 minutes and going through all of this. The system doesn't support it, and I'm not a shrink. I'm not trained to do these things. Those are all poor excuses because the time you spend up front to improve adherence, you're going to save a lot of time in the end, and I'm kind of assuming that all of us are in this business to help people. So if, you don't, if people don't follow what you're suggesting, you're not helping them in the end. So the bottom line is, as long as healthcare professionals treat patients and not diseases, as long as they appreciate they are bound in a reciprocal relationship with their patients that's collaborative and negotiated, as long as they think of collaboration, negotiation, and flexibility in their dealings with their patients in order to achieve a mutually desired outcome that we both agreed on, then treatment adherence will improve if you follow these tenets. 
Osler has some great quotes. It is more important to know what kind of a person has a disease than what kind of a disease a person has. You treat people, not MRIs. The good physician treats the disease. The great physician treats the patient who has the disease. And lastly is a quote from Gustav Flaubert. There is no truth. There is only perception. What you think is truth, it's the perception of the patient that's most important. It's a perception of how they perceive you, how they perceive your treatment, how, what, what, what they've had done in the past, and all of those things are important. There is no black and white with this. Thank you so much.